Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 43, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name again is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, and two even more recently released resources connected to that, uh, two devotions based on the book, Spiritual Grit. Uh, One is for adults, one is for teenagers. So if you have a teenager in your life, or if you have an adult in your life, Oh, wait a minute. You probably are the adult in your life. I'm making a huge assumption there that you are the adult in your life. Either, if you have either of those, um, my friend Michael Kiefer, who I work closely with, took the themes and, uh, and some of the specifics of spiritual grit and turned that into a very creative devotion for adults and a very creative devotion for teenagers. He really added a lot of brilliance um, to these to these devotions. He he added to what I was trying to do in spiritual grit, and in some cases, he did it better than me. So uh, I highly encourage you to check uh, those two new resources. They've just been released in the last week. So the the uh, devotion for adults is a hard, a little hardbound one, and the one for teenagers is soft. So, um, but there's nothing soft about it. It's a hard look at spiritual grit. So check those out, uh, especially with Christmas around the corner. These make fantastic gifts. Do I sound like an infomercial now? Because I'm not. I just am excited about these things, obviously, and because you listen to this podcast, I bet you'll be excited about them too, because they're they're in the spirit of everything that you've heard on this podcast. And um, I'm also the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which was released more than three years ago now, and improbably, that uh, study Bible became the number one most popular study Bible um, out there uh, uh, for several years, because uh, not because we're, we have this long history of publishing Bibles, but because I think people have a latent, built-up hunger for Jesus, and this Bible points you to Jesus no matter where you are, uh, reading in the Bible, because we've added uh, eight or ten special features that do that. We'll talk a little bit about one of those special features today embedded in what we're going to do on the podcast today, but again, uh, fantastic Christmas gift, and if you don't already have one, you adults, get your adult Jesus-centered Bible. Uh, it will really be a, a, a intimate companion for you on your journey with Jesus. So uh, October is Bible Month, that's because we've called it Bible Month. It's not really Bible Month, it's just Bible Month on the podcast here, and that's why we're focusing on the Bible all this month, and we're doing that in an unusual way. We're taking a deeper dive into C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, these seven little children's books uh, about a fantasy world called Narnia, uh, were created by Lewis uh, to flesh out themes um, in the Bible, and to particularly flesh out the character and personality of Jesus— through the metaphor of a character he created uh, whose name is Aslan, and he's a lion. Um, 
So the story, if you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, is four English children, school children, kind of stumble into this fantasy world called Narnia, where there's talking animals, and there's a white witch at the beginning who represents Satan, and uh, there's a big conflict happening in this world. And these four children from England are plunged into this conflict, and eventually, through the narrative of the thread of, the, of all seven books, they become royalty in this other world, um, and they, they bring uh, the kingdom of God, basically, into this world of Narnia. And they also travel back to England <laughs> and live their normal schoolchild life. So uh, last, we, last episode, we explored uh, a scene from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first one of these uh, seven books. And today, uh, we've saved the best for last. We're, we're going to uh, we're gonna take a closer look at something I just touched on in last week's episode. We're going to pay better attention to Lewis's concept of deep magic and deeper magic. So the, these, the, the reference to these two things comes in the sort of crucifixion scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, in the narrative of Narnia, the deep magic is inscribed on the stone table. So instead of a cross uh, in, this, in this book, Aslan, the lion, who's metaphorically Jesus, is sacrificed on a stone table, and on the side of the stone table are some inscriptions, and those inscriptions are called the deep magic. Now, Lewis later said that he was imagining that stone table as the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. So really what he was doing was uh, Jesus... Uh, his because Jesus' character was sacrificed, killed, and then resurrected uh, on a stone table that represented the Ten Commandments to Lewis, which is a profound uh, connection that he's making here, because Jesus is here uh, being sacrificed uh, on literally on a table representing the law of God. So those laws, it turns out, uh, in the Ten Commandments, cannot be kept perfectly by God's creation. These laws represent the kingdom of God and the truth of the kingdom of God, and they're, they're, they're uh, not suggestions, they're commandments, and that's on purpose as well. And it's also on purpose that, no, that God knew that these laws inscribed on the Ten Commandments, on the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, he knew that his creation would not be able to keep these by sheer willpower alone, that they were guaranteed to reveal man's brokenness and inability to be righteous on his own account. So uh, in the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the bridge over this troubled water, which is that we cannot keep the laws perfectly, therefore we're guilty, uh, the bridge over this... Uh, was called the System of Atonement. And the System of Atonement involved sacrificing um, animals, and through the blood of the animals, there was sort of a, a temporary payment made for breaking the commandments, for, for the betrayal of the kingdom of God. So unfortunately, though, it required mankind to repeatedly pay a price for violating the deep magic. Um, the, the law, using the death of an animal as a metaphor. So, but 
this death of an animal simply perpetuated the system because it was not a permanent atonement. It was not a permanent sacrifice to pay the price. You had to keep paying and keep paying and keep paying. So uh, in the in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan wants the White Witch, who's the character that represents Satan, to believe that this system of sacrifice, the deep magic, is the foundation for everything, and there's nothing else beside that. And the whole story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe turns on Aslan knowing that there is a deeper magic that the White Witch is unaware of. She just has not paid attention to it, it's existed from the dawn of time, and she's unaware of it. And everything turns on him trying to convince the White Witch that the deep magic, i.e. the Ten Commandments, is the only truth there is. And that system of atonement, the White Witch understands, will never pay for the break of sin in the relationship between man and God. It can't. So her, from the White Witch's perspective, this perpetual atonement, she can go to town in this, in this kind of environment. Uh, she has a lot of power in this kind of environment, uh, power to destroy mankind, really, in this perpetual system of atonement. So, so she believes there's nothing deeper or more authoritative than the deep magic, but Aslan later explains there is a deeper magic. So when the stone table cracks, uh, now catch this, when, the the st when Aslan is uh, put to death on the stone table, the table cracks down the middle, and here Lewis is making a connection to the rending of the temple curtain separating God from man when Jesus is crucified and finally dies on the cross. When he dies on the cross, the temple curtain, which was designed to keep uh, a, a barrier between God and man, rends from top to bottom, signifying, and God is an artist, by the way, and this temple curtain rending is a signifying that no longer will our relationship with him have this barrier of perpetual atonement. Um, no longer will intimacy be so difficult in our relationship with him. No longer does the deep magic, the commandments, <laughs> define our relationship with him. Now, let me explain what that means, because that sounds uh, kind of heretical. But when the penalty is paid by Jesus on the cross, and unfettered intimacy is now possible, uh, represented by the cracking of the stone table and the rending of the temple curtain, um, th the old way is, is now going to be uh, replaced by a new way. The old covenant is now replaced by a new covenant, and that new covenant uh, ha has a very particular approach to the keeping of the law, the thing that we couldn't do before. In fact, I love this scene right after Aslan uh, uh, comes back to life on the stone table, and two of the children are there to witness this, the two girls, Susan and Lucy, and they see Aslan come alive again, and and uh, come off of the stone table, and very soon after he proves to them that he is really alive, the first thing he does is invite the children to play, and they play a game of tag. Now, this is in the middle of a tense story where there's a battle looming, and, and Aslan's resurrection is going to tip the balance between uh, winning and losing, and yet Aslan 
the first thing he wants to do is stop to play tag with the two children before they head off to join the battle. And I, I think that's profound that Lewis put this scene right there. That's the first thing Aslan does. Because the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, the one that we live in now, where we have the very Spirit of Jesus living in us, uh, teaching us and guiding us um, into a, a life that honors Him and the Kingdom of God from the inside out, that this life looks more like play. This life it, it is play. Uh, this is what Jesus intends in the progression of our relationship with Him, to move from a, a relationship defined by obedience to laws to a relationship defined by play. I think that's profound. So one thing that's important, though, is that we have to understand the deep magic well so that we understand the power of the deeper magic. Now, the deep magic is represented in the Old Testament. The deeper magic is represented by the New Testament. And if you think about this, um, for the thousands and thousands of years, uh, mankind lived under the uh, umbrella of the deep magic. This was the reality for us as a people. Uh, and for about, oh, uh, less than a hundred years, the people of God lived in this New Testament reality, this deeper magic reality. What I mean by that is those who actually lived in, and walked and knew Jesus personally. That era, uh, the last of those who knew him personally when he walked on the earth, uh, died out around 80, 80 AD. Uh, so for those 80 years or so, uh, there, there were people alive who li had lived with Jesus, who introduced the New Covenant. Um, but after those who knew him personally died out, then we are living in what I might call the post-Testament world, meaning from that point on, uh, our relationship with God is defined by our relationship to the Spirit of Jesus who lives in us. In fact, the early disciples had the Spirit of Jesus living in them just as we do, and they began living the post-Testament life. Uh, and, and that sounds a little funny, I know post-Testament sounds funny, but um, we are not actually in the pages of the New Testament. I don't know if you need to flip through there to make sure your name's not in there, but it does not chronicle any of your everyday comings and goings. I mean, Adam and I are not in the New Testament. As much as Adam has insisted that he is in the New Testament, um, uh, I've proven to him that his name is nowhere except in Genesis. So, so we are not actually in the pages of the New Testament, which chronicles... Uh, uh, that era of time. Our lives are lived um, uh, in the spirit of the New Testament, I mean, wh which reveals the heart of Jesus and the heart of God and his great grand plan for reconciling us to him. Uh, but, but we haven't stopped um, following Jesus, understanding Jesus, and being guided by Jesus simply because we're not in the pages of the New Testament. That means we're living in a post-Testament world. So we get a kind of a narrative foreshadowing of the deeper magic, um, which is locked up in the sacrifice of Jesus, in the pages of the deep magic, which is the law of the Old Testament. And so in, the, in our Jesus-centered Bible, we've tried to highlight 
some of that foreshadowing with what we call the blue letters in the Old Testament. So this is something we concocted um, just kind of out of thin air. Our team was trying to think about what special features would we add to the Bible, and I don't even remember who suggested it, but somebody suggested, what if we highlighted in blue letters in the Old Testament every place that foreshadows Jesus in some way? And then, in addition to highlighting those in blue type, uh, created a little explanation box in blue next to each one of those to explain the connection. And so I thought that was a fantastic idea, and I recruited my friend Ken Castor, who's a, a, a Bible college professor, to do this project with me, and we had no idea how long it would take, because as we found out later, no one had ever done this before. <laughs> so it took a lot longer than we expected, and we had to set a limit of these um, foreshadowing blue letters to 700 throughout the Old Testament, because we were finding so many, we couldn't fit them all into a normal-sized Bible. So we just said, we're going to just limit ourselves to 700 and choose those, and that's what we did. So essentially, I'm just going to flip open my Bible to the Old Testament here. I just flipped it open to Psalm 69, and... Uh, I'll just, I'm just going to read the first blue letter um, in—oh, actually, I'm, I'm in Psalm 68. So I'm just going to read the first blue letter I see. It's in Psalm 68, 18, and what's highlighted is, "...when you ascended to the heights, you led a crowd of captives. You received gifts from the people, even from those who rebelled against you. Now the Lord God will live among us there." And then the explanation for that connection is, Paul quotes this psalm, when he describes the generosity of Jesus to the Ephesians. So you can see there's places throughout the Old Testament that have bearing in the New Testament and also in our post-Testament life. So the reason for reading the Old Testament, a lot of people don't read the Old Testament anymore, because I've heard some people that I really respect say things like, I don't even bother with the Old Testament anymore, I'm only interested in Jesus, so I just read the New Testament. I think that is a huge mistake. Because if you don't understand the deep magic, um, what, what Satan thought was the entirety of, of God's law and the entirety of the way he operated, if you don't understand that um, very well, then you're not going to understand the deeper magic very well. And the deeper magic is what we live in today. So it's important to track back and understand what that deep magic was about. So... You could put it this way, the Old Testament is like chapter 2 in a novel, and we're now in chapter 14 in our present day. So the relationship between the Old Testament, the New Testament, and our present life is important, because if you're reading a novel um, and you don't know what happened up until chapter 14, if all you're interested in is cracking open the novel and reading chapter 14, you don't really understand the characters, you don't understand the narrative arc. You don't understand the motivations of why people do what they do in that novel, and you don't get the real impact of the story because you skipped over parts of the novel that are important to understand. So the, the, in the post-Testament life, um, it's important to read the whole novel. Um, don't just focus on a particular chapter in the book. Try to get the whole narrative. That's where the power is, because God is telling a story. And he's telling a macro story of redemption, which really is a churchy word for, for a restoration of intimacy. 
if you have a, a spouse who has committed adultery and cheated on you, and but you long for restoration, that restoration has to happen through a process. It's not flipping a switch. The process has to work to restore intimacy and trust in that relationship. And if you've ever had a betrayal in a close relationship like that, you know that trust is very hard fought on, on even both sides. The person who committed the adultery, can they really trust themselves after that? Can they ever trust their spouse enough to be forgiven by their spouse? Uh, trust is always a huge issue in a broken relationship. So the reason God is writing a story, a macro story, is he's trying to describe the process of reconciliation in his marriage, quote-unquote, to his beloved creation. And so if you're going to understand the enormity and the goodness of his heart, you have to understand what happened before our present chapter 14. So what are your blue letters, metaphorically speaking? I mean, aspects of your past story that matter in your present. That's another way to kind of consider this. So what prophetic moments have happened in your past history? How is your present influence and impact tied to your own blue letters, your narrative foreshadowing? Why and how is your past relevant to your identity and your mission today? So uh, let me give you a couple examples from my life. Um, because You've heard me say before on the podcast, I grew up um, believing that there was nothing inside where my soul and heart were supposed to be. I felt like an empty shell, and so I was always trying to manufacture an identity that that I that I thought uh, I wanted, um, and I was always in manufacturing mode because I believed that I had nothing really inside me that was solid. Um, I never shared this with anyone. I couldn't even have articulated it when I was younger, but that's how I acted, um, and it, it's due to a variety of, of influences and shaping forces in my life when I was young. But I had this deep belief that there was really nothing inside me. Well, it's interesting that now my life's mission and what I've been doing my entire adult life is helping people find their core identity in Jesus. That's not just ironic. That is Jesus taking um, something in chapter two or three of my life, and in a narrative way, later on, many chapters later, turning that experience into a beautiful, powerful, setting captives free life. He took what was meant for, for evil and was ugly in my life, and he has turned that into beautiful music in my life. And one of my life's missions is to help people find and live out of their core identity. That, that is narrative irony, and Jesus is uh, a master at narrative ir- irony. Well, here's another example. Uh, because of those issues in my life, um, I had a, a history of what I call purple relationships. I write about this, by the way, in Spiritual Grit, that I had a history of purple relationships. So if I'm red, and my, and for instance, my, my wife Bev is blue, um, I was over-attached to her. Because I struggled to understand and live out of my own core identity, when people are like that, they're called undifferentiated. It's like a, a cell that doesn't have a very strong cell wall. Um, it's, th- those are, 
cells that we call cancer. <laughs> they, they, uh, they indiscriminately attach themselves to other cells, and then they merge with those cells. So that's called purple. Red, red and blue combined is purple. Well, that's a very dangerous thing for a relationship. You could call it codependency or whatever you want to call it, but I call it purple. Um, and I had a history of purple relationships because of my own brokenness and wounding. And so that's that happened in chapter two or three of my narrative. Now here I am many chapters later, and my life, one of my other life missions is helping people live in a differentiated way, because differentiation defines Jesus. Jesus is never purple in his relationships. He always understands the boundaries of his own identity and the boundaries of another's identity. And because um, uh, I'm attached to Jesus and I have a, a, a love for Jesus, I'm becoming more like Jesus. I value differentiation. I don't like it when I see purple crop up in me. And I have a longing to be free of my purple life. And I'm helping other people to live free of their purple life as well. So again, this is narrative irony and foreshadowing of the life that I live now. Now I look back into my story, and I'm grateful for the ugly. That sounds funny, but but I'm only grateful for the ugly because I'm now experiencing the beauty of the narrative in my life today. And I could not have the beauty of my narrative of my life today without the ugly of the narrative in chapter 2 and 3, if that makes sense. So I'm wondering if there are things like that in your life, where you can point back and say, wow, that, that was a horrible way to grow up, or um, I've always thought of blank as my thorn in the side, or anything that you look back on and you wince about and whether or not you can see the connection to your life today and the beauty that that has become, because Jesus has taken a bunch of discordant notes and made beautiful music out of it. So the confusion of your present life may have a bearing on the mission of your life tomorrow. Another way of saying that is the pain and brokenness of your present life may have a bearing on the beautiful mission of your life tomorrow, because Jesus is all about narrative foreshadowing. He is about redeeming ugly into beauty. It also helps explain the movement of people and circumstances in and out of your life. The things that seem inexplicable at times are the same things that we find in a really good novel, inexplicable in chapter 3, but in chapter 12, oh, oh, it all makes sense. Now, oh, I see the purpose of that part of the narrative that was so confusing and upsetting before. Now I see it in its proper light. So here's a little gear shift here. When we were tied to agriculture as a people, and that's most of our history here as Americans, um, that for most of our history, we have been agriculturally-based people. Most of the jobs were on farms or connected to farms. Obviously, that's not true now. But when we were tied to agriculture as a people, the seasons of our life made better sense. The way life actually works made better sense, because when you understand how agriculture works and how seeds are planted, nurtured, grown, and then harvested, you understand at a fundamental level the patient process of a narrative, that everything is building, and there are sometimes plot twists, like a 
terrible hailstorm or a drought or a flood. These terrible plot twists happen in the seasons of an agricultural life, but you understand um, uh, life as a narrative arc instead of the way we understand it now. In the post-agriculture world, our life is patterned by urgency and temporariness. (laughs) It's a long word. But this urgency and temporariness of everything around us. So it's not just social media and technology, and it's also the 24-7 news cycle. Everything is a big deal for a moment. That's another way of putting it. Um, Nothing is patient. Nothing has a narrative arc to it. They're all disconnected um, experiences and disconnected uh, observations about things, because we are driven in our culture to find meaning only in the moment. That's like finding meaning on one randomly chosen page in a novel. That's what that life is like. You just crack open a novel you've never read before, read one page, and try to extract meaning from it. That's the kind of life we live now because we don't think in terms of a narrative uh, arc or a novel. So let me just give you an example. I'm gonna, this is going to sound like a political example, but I'm, I, I'm not trying to make a political point here. I'm just trying to say, um, from a historical perspective, um, any one or two of the things that Donald Trump has been accused of doing would have ended the presidency— of most presidents in the history of America. (laughs) Just the accusation and the the extent to which these accusations have gone would typically have have ended that uh, president's um, arc. If you think back to what happened with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, um, that almost ended his presidency. He was impeached, but uh, uh, the impeachment was never uh, uh, completed, so he stayed in office. Um, but if you think about that one incident almost led to the end of his presidency, and we've had many ex- ex- uh, experiences with Donald Trump that are kind of like that. So I said this is not—I'm not trying to make a political point. I'm trying to make a point about the times that we live in, that the last thing that we've heard that Donald Trump has done, we quickly forget three days later. It's replaced by something else. And the 24-7 news cycle actually works to this president's benefit. Um, It would work to any president's benefit who was in office today, that people quickly move on. Like, uh, only a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Brett Kavanaugh and his Supreme Court nomination battle. And now it seems like it was five years ago, doesn't it? And it's only been two weeks. We live in an age where we are... uh, gripped and encased in the moment, and that's it. We can't focus on any one thing for very long. We quickly move on to the next thing. So many examples um, in our culture that have such a very short half-life. The news cycle of our reality doesn't match the botanical metaphors of Jesus, who told most of his parables and, and used most of his metaphors embedded in the agricultural world not just because that was the reality for the people of his day, that was true, but also because embedded in the agricultural world is a mirror of his narrative cycle of our life. So, in that light, the Old Testament was really a long prelude to Jesus. You can think of it as the planting of the seeds in the ground, the planting of the seeds of redemption in the ground. They're buried in the ground. Now they have to be nurtured. Now they have to be... uh, cared for, 
until they uh, grow into maturity, and then the narrative is harvested at the, at the cross. It comes to a culmination at the cross. At the very moment when things look darkest is when the crops are springing up through the ground and about to be harvested. So the end game for God in this narrative is simple. It's intimacy with his creation, with you and me. Another way of thinking about this is, uh, I don't know if you're a, a fan of the Ocean's Eleven films. There's been many sequels to them, and just recently an all-female version called Ocean's Eight. Um, I think there's probably five or six of these films out there now, and they're really well-done sort of caper films. And it's always a community of people. Um, they do happen to be criminals, but they're good friends, um, and their mission has always a financial reward to it, um, but also they're, they're, in a way, trying to strike a blow for, for righteousness. Some, some, whoever, they're, whoever they're targeting has done something wrong and gotten away with it. So they want to not only profit from their mission, but they also want to teach the bad guy a lesson. And so they concoct these elaborate capers, these uh, heist schemes, to uh, get away with crimes that seem impossible to get away with. And the way these films are crafted is that they're very fast-paced. They almost fe- it almost feels like you're you're watching music when you when you watch these films because of how tightly they're constructed. And there's a lot of things that happen early on in these films that um, is are not explained. You see the characters doing or saying something or preparing for something, and you don't really understand how it all fits together. And what happens at the very end of the, each of these films is that you get to see as the viewer all of the ways that those uh, those plot devices early on in the story, oh, they now make sense when you see the backstory behind what they were doing this whole time. And that's part of the fun of watching these movies, is that at the end, they show you how the heist was was uh, was uh, accomplished by looking back to all these strange, twisty plot devices early on, and showing you what was really going on underneath, un- behind the scenes, and why those things were so important. So that that's a that's an interesting way to look at the story of the Old Testament into the New Testament into the post Testament life. When you now we're at a certain place in the film where we can look back at the earlier plot devices and see, oh, that's why that happened. And the blue letters in the Old Testament, that's what we're trying to do, show you those plot devices that matter uh, later on that you don't really understand in the whole narrative arc until you have some perspective looking back on the story. So our whole life feels like the last chapter of a book, doesn't it? But really... The whole thing is just a prelude. All those things that happen to you along the way are just a prelude in the story that Jesus is writing in your life. So we don't really know where we are in the story because we're in the story. <laughs> we're not viewers of our own story. We are in it. So we don't have the perspective of somebody viewing our story uh, because we're embedded in it. So the characters uh, really don't understand the story they're in. They can't skip to the end of the story like my mom does whenever she buys a novel. She, she always skips to the end of the story because she has a hard time handling the tension of the narrative. She wants to know how it all comes out, so she always skips to the end. Well, if you're a character in the story, you can't skip to the end. 
you, you can't look ahead to see what's at the end. You have to trust the story. I always say, um, uh, trust the storyteller because he's telling a good story. And I, I guess I said it enough that my daughter Lucy, who's in college now, took that, uh, made her own giant plaque for her dorm room that says, trust the story God is telling, because you can trust the heart of the storyteller. That's in her dorm room right now. It's a reminder to her that no matter what's happening in her plot, um, we know the good heart of Jesus, and he's the one writing our story. So we can trust what's going to happen in chapter 14 if we're stuck in chapter 5 right now. So if you did stand outside of your own story, you wouldn't be so worried, <laughs> of course, because you'd see the whole narrative arc. You'd see where it's going. So this is really the role of the Holy Spirit, to give us the perspective we need and no more than we need, and no more than what we need to depend upon in this moment. The Holy Spirit's job is to help guide us into truth, and in a way, to, if you think about, if you're a character in your own story, the Holy Spirit's job is to help us navigate our story from the perspective of the storyteller. So the Holy Spirit is here to help guide us in this story. You can think about this like J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter books. If you're familiar with those books, uh, there's a, a, a wizard who's a central character in these books whose name is Dumbledore. He's the most respected character in, in the stories. And Dumbledore's role in the redemption of mankind um, includes the, his own death by betrayal. So it's a, remarkable how Rowling has written the most popular novels in history, um, with embedded underneath them is the gospel story again. It's, it's, it's a retelling of, of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, who retold the gospel story in a fantasy world. Rowling did something similar. She embedded, either on purpose or by accident, quote-unquote, because the deeper magic is embedded deep in our souls. We all go back to it as if it was a magnetic north. And so Rowling, whether she knew it or not, was embedding in her story many aspects of the deeper magic. So the wizard Dumbledore um, knows he has a role to play in the redemption uh, and, the, and the winning of good versus evil. So it included his own death through a betrayal, and, he, and he's inviting that betrayal. So early on in the films, some of what he, Dumbledore does doesn't make much sense. You don't know which side he's on sometimes, because he's making decisions that don't seem to make sense. And some of those decisions are designed to guarantee that he will be betrayed and killed. And for, in fact, his friend Snape, my favorite character in those stories, um, Snape uh, is, uh, uh, is recruited to be the one to betray Dumbledore. Dumbledore essentially convinces Snape that the, the only way to save mankind is to sacrifice his own life, and it needs to come at the hand of Snape so that he can uh, convince the powers of evil that he's on their side. It's all very shrewdly played out. So, so uh, Snape uh, does betray Dumbledore, which leads to his death, and it also appears to lead to Harry Potter's death, who, remarkably, is resurrected just at the right time to help the side of good win and defeat Voldemort, 
who is the metaphor for Satan in those stories, forever. Rowling can't help but tell a story of the deeper magic. So, what do we do with all this? Um, Here's a few things I'd like for you to think about going forward. The first is, have you thanked Jesus for for redeeming the pain and confusion of your past, foreshadowing your present impact? I'm just going to stop for a moment. Um, Wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this, just ask Jesus and pause for a second. What is something in my past that was painful that you have taken those discordant notes and made beautiful music out of? Just stop for a moment and let something surface. Ask him, what is something in my life? I'm going to pause just for a moment. All right, whatever it is that's just popped into your head, have you stopped to simply offer your gratitude to Jesus for the beauty of the, uh, the, the beautiful way that he's taken that dark thing and made it into light? If you haven't, um, stop and thank him today for that, because he's a great storyteller. Trust his heart. Another question is, have you paid enough attention to the deep magic, the Old Testament, to understand the significance of the deeper magic, the New Testament. If you haven't, go back and read the early pages of the novel, so that the later pages of the novel take on more significance. And as I've mentioned already, getting a Jesus-centered Bible is a fantastic way to do that. It will point out to you the, the thread, the blue thread, that runs through the foreshadowing of the Old Testament. So if you haven't done that before, I encourage you to do it. Have you embraced the broken stone table in your life? I mean, you are not now living in the part of the novel where the law law foreshadowed the deeper magic. Your life is not defined by the law any longer. I know that sounds funny, but, you know, it's just scriptural. Your life is defined by a reborn identity, fueled by the Spirit of Jesus in you. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, Sin is no longer your master, for... He's about to explain why sin is no longer our master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. That's play. That's playing with the children. We're no longer living under the shadow of the requirements of the law that we could never keep. Instead, we live under the freedom of God's grace, and we can play like we've never played before because of this freedom. The last thing is... Um, maybe uh, an interesting lens to approach the Jesus of the New Testament is to approach it with an Ocean's Eleven lens. (laughs) Uh, Jesus is revealing the strategies and preparations that have been going on from the dawn of time, from earlier in the narrative, and he's explaining to you how this all works together and the outcome of those strategies now. There is much more to be revealed, but if I would encourage you to simply read all of John chapter 15, and you will see in John chapter 15, Jesus laying out for his disciples what things meant in the past, how they're being fulfilled now, and how they will impact the future. He is pretty much a narrator toward the end of an Ocean's Eleven film, trying to explain to the viewer, here's how this all works together and here's what it means, and here's the outcome. Just read John chapter 11. You'll see what I mean. 
And as you read it, think about that Ocean's Eleven filter. And then read all of the New Testament with that kind of filter on it. That's how you will unlock the real power of what's going on. That's, that's why the Ocean's Eleven movies are so enjoyable to watch, because they end with a big punch, always at the end. And uh, we are living in the age of the big punch. <laughs> the post-Testament life is a life full of freedom and impact and gravity because of the place in the narrative that we're living today. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Just find our podcast section and Season 3, Episode 43. By the way, uh, we have an uh, offer going for the month of October on our Jesus-Centered Bible. You get a free uh, Jesus-Centered Bible journal when you buy a Bible. It's a great uh, tandem gift especially if you're thinking of somebody for Christmas. So that's just for the month of October. You can go to group.com to, and then just search for Jesus Center Bible. You'll probably see it on the first page anyway, but uh, uh, if not, just search for Jesus Center Bible. You'll find a whole page dedicated to it, and you'll, you'll see that offer there, and we'll also put a link on our podcast page. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and if you do, you'll make sure you won't miss any. Hey gang, we'll talk again next time.